On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome Sean Payne, an investigator with the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, for the first in a two-part interview. In part one this week, Payne walks us through how the agency collects, processes, and uses information from aircraft data recorders to help determine the cause of an accident. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hi, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. I'm so very close to taking to the skies once again. Any day now. I'm I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, I'm I'm already already getting notifications from the airline that my flight is pretty crowded and I can change to another one if I want. Wow. It's a brave new world. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to because there are no other flights to change to. Uh, <laughs> but thanks for the offer. If I you wanted could to go through somewhere else, if I wanted to go through Nashville on a three hour layover, I can. <laughs> it's so nice of them to give you the option. Yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of a, a statement of the, I guess, the, the health of the industry right now that American operating between LaGuardia and Chicago, there's like, two non-stops a day, maybe three non-stops on a weekday, as opposed to in the past where there could have been hourly, not not could have been, but it wasn't could, hourly. Yeah, that could have been, were hourly. Yeah. Literally from 7 a.m. probably till 8 p.m. there was a flight every hour. Now it's three times a day at best. That's, uh, we're getting better, but it ain't great. No, it's a slow ramp up, especially since I'm flying on, on Saturday. It's slim pickings to begin with. Yeah, it, it's just you and I don't even know who else. We'll, we'll find out and, in the next episode. Yeah, me and 179 of my closest friends. Ah, uh, that's uh, – I don't know how I feel about that one. I can't afford that many hot dogs. Mm, too bad. Okay. We have a great show for you today, this week – Whatever day you're listening to the episode, we think we it's have, going to be great. A great, great guest. I don't know about the rest of the show, but the guest I know is going to be great. You know, your your enthusiasm needs work. Well, we haven't recorded the rest of the podcast yet, so I can't <laughs> vouch for its excellence. On this episode, we have the the first of, of two weeks with Sean Payne, who is an investigator at the National Transportation Safety Board. His focus is recorders. So he's a mechanical engineer by training and a recorder specialist by trade. And we're going to talk to him in a little bit about all the ins and outs of how aircraft recorders work, how the NTSB uses the data, gets the data off the recorders, and all that good fun stuff. And then we'll be back next week with a part two episode to talk a a little bit more about the recorder of the future, or the recorder of the future that the NTSB would like to see. Yes, the recorder of the future that they have been asking for for two decades. Yes, but we'll talk about it nonetheless. Let's start the show with some good news. How how about that? And then we'll get to the rest of it. Shall we, Jason? Okay. I mean, the first thing you have on our list here is certainly not good news, but go for it. I'm skipping. I'm skipping because I've decided that we should start with good news. Okay, I thought so you were we'll taking a back. dark path and calling this very not good news, good news. No, 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 no. So after about a week's delay from the initial date of first flight, Ingenuity, the small helicopter that hitched a ride with the Perseverance rover to Mars, had its first flight this week. And it was so cool. Yeah, it was everything we had hoped it would be, including a uh, pre-flight firmware update onto another planet, (laughs) which is pretty amazing. But the thing, I mean, we have still photos and we even have HD video from the Ingenuity rover. I'm sorry, the Perseverance rover actually took video of Ingenuity taking off, hovering and and landing, which is ridiculously cool. It was really fun to, to watch that video because you see it kind of spin up. You see it lift off, and then it turns around. That what got me is that it turned around. Oh, it had to smile for the camera, and that was so cool. And then it landed. So, I mean, granted, thirty nine point one seconds, but still, that was and really what was cool. It, ten ten feet above Martian ground level. 
Yes, yes. 10 feet above ground, Martian ground level. Three meters for anyone listening anywhere else. And it was really fun to watch. I mean, amazing that we've got HD video coming back, you know, photos from all over. And th- this is a thing that that has been done now. First yeah. controlled powered flight on another planet. Yep, pretty amazing. And for anyone who may have doubted it or, or said, who cares, it, it's, it's a little drone, of course, it's going to work. Well, NASA was very kind to point out that the atmosphere on Mars is, is extremely different than Earth, of course, otherwise it wouldn't be a problem. But it, the air there is incredibly thin. So just being able to take off and actually hover under controlled flight is pretty great. Yeah, I thought that was really Interesting how they they talked about the the challenges of of flight, not necessarily you know landing a lander or anything like that, but just you know flying a helicopter or rotorcraft of any kind or, or even a fixed wing aircraft, and and the differences with the the gravity and the the air pressure making it such a a challenging and kind of really an unknown. We hope this works. The modeling works. Let's let's make sure it, it works. So yeah, really cool. And they're they're gonna do. They've got I guess a two week window to conduct more flights. So the next one, the second flight, I believe, is the scheduled for the twenty second. So the day before everyone's listening to the podcast is the second flight, and they've got a few more that are supposed to take place over the the next two week window. So that'll be real fun to watch and and see what else they get up to. Hopefully they, you know, do some pattern work or something. I don't know. Yeah. And and one more interesting stat on the atmosphere on Mars, it was an equivalent altitude of about a hundred thousand feet on Earth, which is obviously much higher than any earthbound helicopter can fly and is pretty much higher than any any other aircraft flies today. So a hundred thousand feet is kind of amazing. That's a heck of a way to think about it. Isn't it? Now it's even cooler. Yeah. All right. I'm very happy for them. Very I'm very excited. I perhaps irrationally so, maybe this is just kind of a, a glomming on to good aviation news of any kind. But I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it and, and hopefully we can get some more great footage or, or scientific data out of this thing over its next thirty souls of proving flight. Let's continue with the good news because I'm feeling that we're moving in, in a good direction. And then we'll really hit the brakes and, and, and reverse things on us. The trans-Tasman bubble is open. Hey, uh, they which finally sounds, did it. You know, they, they finally did it, which, which sounds exciting, and, and it is. What can happen now or what is happening now is that flights between Australia and New Zealand, if, if you're flying between the two, you, you no longer need to quarantine if you're flying from from one to the other directly. So they, they've kind of filled in the flight schedule. And I know, Jason, you were excited to see the the Solari board, or I don't know if it's a Solari board, but it's a split similar to board. Yeah, a, a flippy flappy board. And that was reactivated by by Qantas CEO Alan Joyce. And then uh, they're off and running on that. Hopefully it works out. Hopefully. And- and perhaps gets expanded. We shall see. But it's a a step in yeah in a, hopefully a good direction. Yeah, there have been over the last I don't know six months there have been lots and lots of different travel bubbles proposed between various countries, and none of them come to fruition. I think there have been a few proposed from Hong Kong, maybe one in India, the UK. None of it works. But this one, at least the uh, day one or maybe day two, so far so good. Yeah, nothing to to tell us that it, it's not working yet. But I'm looking on the positive side. Uh, yep, these are it's flights between two countries that seem to relatively have things figured out. So why shouldn't it work? There you go. Okay, now it's Flip the uh, switch. now we, we're flipping the switch. I don't want to call it a bungle because bungle undersells how dumb this is. But which one are we just, going with here? The, uh, do we want to go with? Oh, okay, let's go from the top. The uh, the 737 MAX has been partially regrounded mere weeks after being ungrounded. Right. Partially. So there was an issue created by a what 
Boeing, it's called a minor design change that happened in the ground, the initial grounding period after 2019. Boeing switched from rivets to fasteners on a, an electrical part, and that has led to the possibility that the piece won't be electrically grounded, which could lead to various systems. Yeah, a, a lack of secure grounding could cause malfunctions in a variety of electrical systems. A variety of electrical systems is not is not a phrase that that I would be happy to to see here. And Dominic Gates lists uh, in, in the Seattle Times such as engine anti-ice system and the auxiliary power unit in, in the aircraft's tail. So both things are important and and variety leads me to believe that there could be more uh, affected systems. So that led to nearly 60 737 MAX being grounded until they could be examined and 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 fixed 30 Southwest aircraft, American 17, United 16, and there have been others at other airlines, though I don't have those particular figures. Where to begin? So I, you I don't you can't even get the words out. It, no, I, I can't. Just the thought that Boeing would make a, a any sort of change to the design of the 737 MAX during the period where it was being highly scrutinized for its prior issues with MCAS and the two fatal crashes. And first of all, screwed up the change so that something as simple as electrical grounding path for a piece of equipment would not be properly maintained. But then B, I guess they didn't tell the FAA or the FAA didn't properly vet the change. So again, this leads to the conclusion that Boeing is not properly vetting it, its technologies on on the the Max and whatever other new aircraft it it is in development, and the FAA is not keeping a close enough eye on what Boeing is doing. That's my personal opinion, of course. Um, yeah, in, in this case, this was and and the FAA says that this was a minor design change, so that's a an important phrase to say that it does not require approval from either the FAA or. Boeing's designated authority within Boeing that, that works on behalf of the FAA to to certify things. But at some point, Boeing runs out of feet to shoot themselves in. Yeah, especially when it comes to something as simple as electrical grounding. That That's like basic 101 level stuff that your electronic components need to be grounded. And I assume I'm, I'm just spitballing here that when they switched from rivets, which were probably metal, to fasteners of some sort, which I don't know, maybe plastic or zip ties, probably not zip ties, but some sort of plastic fastener, they probably broke that path to ground, which is just really, really basic stuff. And some people I, I've seen on, on Twitter and, and have talked to are pretty appalled that Boeing could make this mistake, not just on, on one component, but apparently multiple, or that Boeing would change anything about the design of the MAX during the period where it was grounded that wouldn't be vetted by the FAA or other civil aviation authorities. That, that That's the part that gets me. Unless, if I'm Boeing here, and I'm sure, I'm sure they had a good reason, or at least thought they had a really good reason to make this change. But from the outside, and if I'm wrong and, and you have a better handle on this and you're listening to this podcast, please email us at podcast at fr24.com and, and, and set me straight because I don't want to pile on where piling on is not deserved. However, if I'm Boeing, I'm not making any changes to this aircraft. I'm making sure the change or, or any additional changes to the aircraft. I'm making sure the changes that I'm making to recertify the aircraft are the, those change. I'm making those changes, those changes alone, and I'm getting the aircraft back in the air. And I'm doing it safely. And if I am making any changes, I'm going to test it 150 different ways. And then have someone else test it 150 ways. Exactly. Invite outside scrutiny every chance I get. This is just not this is bad all around for, for Boeing and the FAA. Thankfully, that this was caught before it, it apparently caused any major issues, but a good chunk of the 737 MAX fleet being grounded 
once again for a grounding issue, <laughs> weirdly enough, mere weeks after we were or days after we were just saying, here we go, everything's ramping up. Every airline in North America that had the MAX has them back in the air. Well, now Alaska doesn't have any MAXs in the air because they're all impacted and a good chunk of Southwest's fleet is grounded. And Thankfully, this seems to be a minor fix once it's identified and, and vetted and they'll get aircraft back in the air relatively soon. But it, it's just bad, a bad look for everyone. I mean, we've talked over the past two years about the need for Boeing to repair the relationship it has with airlines. I, I mean, people who buy airline tickets and then fly aren't the customers that, that Boeing is you – know, n- those aren't really the customers that Boeing needs to repair the trust with. People get on an airplane, they don't really know what it is, unless you listen to this podcast. But for the most part, people who get on an airplane, a 737 is a 737. It might be an A320, who knows? It could be an, an Airbus 7350 or something like that. You, you get on the plane and you go wherever you're going to go. But airlines know exactly what plane they're buying. And for airlines to be comfortable with Boeing, I mean, they need to be able to trust Boeing to get it right. And, and if I'm an airline, at, at some point, like, and I know that Tim Clark's conversations about not the 737, but the, the 777X this week, I mean, continue to be very pointed in, in the fact that he doesn't really trust them. And I he's in a position where he can say these things out loud. But my thinking, at least what I'm reading between the lines here, is that there are probably a lot of other people at a lot of other airlines that feel the same way. Yeah, it's just not good. And to everyone over the course of the grounding who said continuously that the MAX will be the most scrutinized, safest aircraft in the world, in the history of the world, how did this get past them? To that, I do not have an answer. Nobody does. However, the Department of Transportation's Office of Inspector General is going to give it a shot. They've announced their third review uh, the 737 MAX, this time focusing on the FAA decision to to recertify the MAX. So this audit will focus on the FAA's risk assessments, the grounding of the aircraft, and the subsequent recertification. So this will be a follow-on to the the two reports that have already come out, the latest of which I believe was February, came out of February this year, dealing with the the weaknesses in the FAA certification process. So that will be something to to watch, likely taking a few months to complete at this point. So I think we'll see something in the fall perhaps on this front, which I'm sure we will discuss when it comes out. Yeah, I don't see this one as a huge deal because the FAA didn't as far as what's in public view, didn't do anything outlandish or out of ordinary from other certification agencies like EASA. Um, so right. it's not like right. only the FAA has recertified the aircraft. So um, no, I, I, I don't think, know what they'll find. But yeah, I think this is more of a of a structural right. investigation. Is there anything that could be improved at, at a structural level to? ensure that future aircraft certification or, or continuing certification of aircraft is something that you know is safety first and has uh, has the, the the right you know right frame but we will see on that front let's take a break and when we come back we will talk with Sean Payne the investigator at the NTSB about uh, all things flight data recorders. And it's going to be a, I, I promise you, a very, very interesting conversation and, and very enlightening. So do stay with us after a quick break. Welcome back. We are now joined by Sean Payne from the National Transportation Safety Board. He is a mechanical engineer and is an investigator with the NTSB's Vehicle Recorder Division. And he has graciously agreed to come on the show and spend a a good chunk of time with us. We're actually going to have a, a very long conversation. We'll break it up over a couple episodes because we think it's worth 
really, really getting into things here. And we're going to talk about what happens in an accident investigation and then kind of some of the things that the NTSB as a safety focused and agency really wants to see adopted to increase aviation safety specifically. So Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. Hi, Jason. Yeah, Hi, Sean. Ian. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> long time uh, listener, first time caller. We, we, we absolutely, uh, yeah, we, we absolutely love that. And, and, and we're thrilled to have you on. I want to start with, I guess, how do you come to, to work for the NTSB? Sure. So that, that's a great question. And it's, it's something that, you know, everyone asks, like, oh, you work with black boxes. How unique is that? How do you, how do you, how do you find yourself in this position? And I kind of serendipitously found myself here when I was, been in aviation my whole life, became a pilot in the early 2000s, graduated from college with a mechanical engineering degree and specialization in uh, aerospace engineering. Was looking for a job out of college, I ultimately did flight tests for the Navy and kind of accidentally found myself in the recorder's world of NAVAIR, the Naval Air Warfare Center, which does all the flight testing for the U.S. Navy. Basically was in a program where I had to choose a rotation as a junior employee. And uh, I was reading a Navy newspaper and I came across an article about a uh, deployable flight recorder that had floated across the sea, the Pacific Ocean, from uh, an ejection of an F-18 off the coast of Japan, but wound up on a beach in Hawaii. Read an article about how, how this recorder was recovered and what lab it was sent to. And since I was in this program, I basically called the number that was for the reward on the black box, the same as the surfer that had found it in Hawaii. And I got the chief of the lab there at the Navy. And um, that's how I started working with flight recorders. Did that for a little while. And by way of the accident investigation community, found my way working with the NTSB a few times, waited for a job posting to show up on USA Jobs. If you ever navigated that system, you'll know what I'm talking about and apply. So um, I've been working with the NTSB for eight years now in the vehicle recorders lab, and I do all things electronic and data recovery. Well, that's definitely not the most orthodox or standard way to find yourself in a career, but it certainly worked out for you, didn't it? Yeah. I, you know, since I love flying, I love transportation in general. The lab, we work with all modes of transportation that the NTSB investigates. So I really get to touch everything. I, I really love working here. So when we're talking about vehicle recorders, listeners to our podcast generally know exactly what we're talking about, but walk us through as far as aviation goes, what recorders are we talking about? Which ones are you working with specifically? Sure. So traditionally, you know, when people think of crash investigation, they think of the black box, which we all know is, is orange and that's so we can find it. But actually I spend most of my time just trying to get any source of data off off the vehicle, in this case, an airplane, if we're going to limit ourselves to aviation. So um, that could be a flight instrument display, a PFD, an MFD, an engine monitoring unit, or it could be a federally sanctioned crash-protected recorder, such as a CVR or an FDR. And basically, the lab, the Vehicle Recorders Division, anything that could possibly record data, whether it was meant to be read out for an accident investigation purpose or not, is, is my responsibility to dig that data out, no matter how we can do it, and for lack of a better term, exploit it so the other investigators can, can you know, glean something from it. So what, what I thought we could do is start at the very beginning and walk through how the NTSB investigates an aviation incident or, or accident and, and kind of go from the minute you receive word that you're going sure. to be needed all the way through public board meeting, here's the final report. I know we're, we're limiting ourselves to the amount of time that, that we can discuss. I'm sure the, the three of us could, could go on for days, but we'll, we'll do our best to, yeah. to keep things moving. So yeah, yeah who, there's a lot to talk about here. Who yeah. says go? Something happens Sure. You know, so a, a plane crashes and then what happens? Sure. So we have a response operations center and they're 24 seven inside the NTSB headquarters and they are constantly monitoring all sources of information, including traditional news media, Twitter, any way that we might get notified publicly by an accident. And also the official ways, as if you have an accident on the NTSB form, they are the receiving end of the, of the, of the phone call for an accident report. They are monitoring, let's say the aviation situation. If there's an accident, they will start coordinating with agency management, a go team. 
the Rock, or say Response Operations Center, we call them the Rock. They will generate a text message, which is sent out to all NTSB investigators of that mode. So um, they think specifically when people when I tell people I'm on uh, work for NTSB, they go, "Oh, are you on the Go team?" For most aviation cases, I'm not on the Go team. I actually go to the lab. So we are notified based on our specialties as to you know who might make up this Go team. For me, on an aviation case, I would be you know basically put on standby to come to the lab. And then we'll start talking about, okay, what's the situation with the aircraft? Did it even have a flight recorder to begin with, a CVR and FDR? And what's the status of that on scene? The ROC will then coordinate, you know, sending physical members of the NTSB to the accident site, as we know, the, the, the GO team. And uh, basically from there, I start coordinating with who's the investigator in charge, who are the boots on the ground, and how I can assist them in recovering the recorder and, you know, ultimately getting it back to the lab's hands. It's interesting. So while the GO team is actually, you know, they're, they're dispatched, they get on the next flight or they have their own aircraft and they go out to the crash scene, you are actually scrambling to headquarters to even more immediately start doing whatever you can from where you are. Sure. Yeah. And immediately is a good word. So the as the GO team is immediately launching, we're usually immediately looking through paperwork for that aircraft or any kind of documentation or records we can find. And with a CVR, or specifically an FDR, one of the first things we'll start doing is looking in our library of past investigations for a data frame that's similar to the aircraft that had an accident. If we'd seen anything similar before, that will give us kind of get, get maybe too much in the technical side, but you don't just plug in a flight recorder and download it. You have to have somewhat of a roadmap. So we'll start immediately looking for that roadmap to try and uh, you know, download the device should we have it in our possession. So even before an investigator lands and gets to the, the crash site, you may already know the entire history of the aircraft involved in that incident. Basically, what incidents it may have had in the past, its operators, it, its configuration, all that stuff. So you're, you and anyone else doing a job like you, you've already done quite a bit of work before there are even boots on the ground. Sure. We'll start looking at the paperwork from my perspective. So I'm just dealing with the recorders. We would have like an a systems guy or an operations investigator maybe start looking at more broad-based aircraft's history. What we're specifically interested in the lab is getting that data off the unit as fast as possible. And that includes like identifying maybe a aircraft that was close in serial number that we've seen before that may have a similar data frame to expedite, you know, getting that information off the flight recorder. So we'll be looking at, we will be looking at, you know, the aircraft's airworthiness records too to see if it even had a recorder installed and maybe what type of recorder it was. So the investigators on the GO team get to the aircraft and let's say they they find the flight data recorder, they find the CVR. What's the process for securing those and returning them to the lab? And and then how, how does that part work? Sure. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's highly dependent on the situation. I think we could, we could have a whole episode about just finding it. As you said, you know, and here's a scenario where they've located it, right? So the, the, the immediate need there is to get it back to headquarters in a secure method and as fast as possible. And that's an, another place where the response operations center comes into play. And I think the best and most efficient example of that is if the FAA does provide us with an aircraft to launch the GO team in the best case scenario, they can turn that recorder back around on the FAA jet and, and bring it back to National Airport in, in, in Virginia, at which point we'll go pick it up. What happens more often is our response operation center. Typically, they have been using uh, the Federal Air Marshal Service. Either an investigator from the NTSB will accompany it back, return on the next commercial flight coming back to D.C., if that's not possible and the NTSB member needs to, or the NTSB uh, GO team member needs to stay on the scene, we'll coordinate with the Federal Air Marshal Service and basically an air marshal will shuttle it back to DC and either someone from our ROC will meet that person at the gate or myself as a specialist, I've done it on numerous occasions where I physically pick up the recorder. I'm just trying to get a mental picture of this here. The, the FAA jet with, with the NTSB member, that makes perfect sense to me. The use of the federal air marshals is, is interesting to me, but I'm just trying to, to picture, is the air marshal just sitting there with the recorder on his lap? <laughs> so I can't say I've ever been on the aircraft with them, but there, there have been a few photos caught of, of recorders being transported and, and they're, they're few and far between. But um, 
that the federal air marshal will, I'll say, accompany the item within his site at all times, whether or not it's in another box and no one knows what's in that box could be one thing. Uh, that's more typically the case, but we, we have had recorders see, seen within National Airport. I'll, I'll say say that. So um, and the, jump in real quick. Just it gets more complicated when we have a water recovery, and that air marshal is then required to bring through a cooler of water through security. I was just and, going and to ask that about that on the plane. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, yeah, yeah. I, we we've seen and recently some of the investigations that the NTSB has, NTSB has done, where the recorders are are recovered. In you know the aircraft has crashed into a, a wet area or a watery area, and the the recorder is recovered from water and is then put back into water. Can you explain why what's going on? Like I, I assume it's to help preserve kind of the conditions it was found in, and then clean it at the lab. But how does that work? Yeah. So the enemy of wet electronics is is corrosion, and what we're trying to do is inhibit that process from the get go. So. I'm sure out of all the listeners you have, there's going to be some chemists that could finally pick apart, you know, what I'm saying here and, and have in the past and other presentations I gave. But the best practice we do is to put deionized water in a cooler to facilitate, you know, so number one, if, it, if it's if something's wet and it's staying wet, it's not exposed to air and it's not uh, given the ability to corrode as quickly. Uh, similarly, if it's uh, taken from salt water, uh, we put it in fresh water because we want to get those salt crystals and, and minerals uh, off the electronic board, should they be exposed, you know, the electronics themselves. So yeah, it comes down to essentially, you know, the field investigators or the go team getting creative and you know selecting the cooler at the local Walmart and you know finding a place to uh, finding a way to seal that up so it's secure for for, for transport and uh, get it back to us as long as it's wet. We don't really have an issue of how it's kept wet. I'll I'll say that. So the recorder arrives. At the NTSB, you know, main facility, you've got either a, a dry recorder in a good good state. It's been mangled and smashed to bits, and you're you have no idea if, if it's going to be recorded. Or you've got yourself a cooler uh, and <laughs> you know, full of water. What's the process for determining the shape of the recorder and and how best to proceed to? see if there's data and, and to be able to to download it to to be able to sure it. so i'll start by saying the number one thing we're, we're, we're trying to do is preserve the data from you know accident accidental loss so that takes priority over anything so we have a number of different procedures we follow in order you know based on the condition of the recorder and i'll, I'll kind of go through some of the some of the white some of the ways it might arrive so um, an un, it's called an undamaged download. In most situations, you can do a functional check on the device and ensure that applying power to it on our download rack you know, won't cause any un, unforeseen short circuits that you might you know, not be able to physically see damage-wise. And we'll just proceed with you know, a normal download as if we were the manufacturer or the operator. And you know, we have electronics racks similar to what's installed in the aircraft. We provide power and uh we hook it to a computer, for example, and we pull out the raw data. So obviously an undamaged situation is, is the easiest to take care of. When you start going down into damage recoveries, you know, you've got a lot of different scenarios there. And I'll start by saying that the recorder is made up of a few parts. There's basically a, a, an acoustic locating beacon attached to what we call the crash survivable memory unit, say CSMU. Uh, what's inside that CSMU is the valuable data, so to speak. So there's, you know, a number of memory chips that are striped in such a way where the loss of one chip would not affect, you know, overall data loss. And how much damage per those chips can occur kind of depends on the recorder. But in general, the rest of the recorder can be thrown away at that point. I shouldn't say thrown away, but it, it's not interesting to us. At which case, we'll then evaluate the memory chips inside the CSMU and determine how to best do that recovery. In the end, it often comes down to uh, using what we call a golden chassis. So we have in the laboratory every Western-made flight recorder that we order from the manufacturers with, with one simple modification. And that's uh, basically a modification that turns off any further writing of data. So if we have, let's say, an FA2100, which is a popular L3 device, we have that in a golden chassis version. So um, if we have damaged CSMU, we'll extract the memory, 
you might have to solder a new cable onto that memory, do functional checks on that, but then we'll plug it into our golden chassis and basically pretend, you know, have the recorder pretend that, that nothing's ever happened to it in the first place and then proceed with a normal download. That's kind of an ideal scenario for a damage recovery. Um, of course, you can imagine it gets more complicated than that, but that's one way to do it. If it's damaged even beyond that using a, a golden chassis, you either work on previous knowledge we've gained on you know, memory chip direct access and readout and then subsequent conversion, or we call the manufacturer for basically a roadmap of their internal memory as to how to read that out on a specialized reader and then convert that to flight data. I'm assuming everything you look at at this point is a solid state recorder. Do, do you still see at all in any investigations, uh, I guess, magnetic tape recorders, or is that a thing of the past? Yeah, I, I th- <laughs> we just did one two weeks ago. So they are, they, there are you still, go. They, they are still coming in. The FAA has not outlawed them. The FAA has said they are obsolete, but so long as you meet the minimum recording requirements, whether that be for a CVR or a 88 parameters for an FDR, you can still use a magnetic tape recorder. So we still are seeing that. I wouldn't say we're so much seeing them in the United States, which we are a lot of times on older business jets, but also in the course of NTSB's assistance with uh, foreign governments uh, for their flight recorder readouts where they might not have a facility in their home country to do so. Right. Um, right. So we, we see them quite, quite often. And uh, as you can imagine, they are bare. Yeah. So how, how much more difficult is the process when we're talking about magnetic tape versus digital? Because there's definitely a whole host of other considerations and issues. Yeah. The worst scenario I can imagine is that the tape is damaged itself and then it becomes a giant, you know, loom of hairball of eight track magnetic tape that has to be, you know, organized and converted. So um, it, it can, it can be a real mess. Uh, that said, one in pristine condition, not too nightmarish to deal with, but certainly time-consuming. So that, and I'll just tag along real quick. Oftentimes you see a photo of a lab and, and people have commented on our Twitter, we have what's called a Nagra T, which is a device specially made to read out. It's a reel-to-reel player. And not too many Nagra Ts are in existence. I think we own most all of them left in the world. <laughs> so parts for the readout of these devices is becoming a challenge. So I was going to kind of take a step back and, and I mean, at the top of the interview, we, we mentioned that you're a mechanical engineer, but then you're also working with the recording, you know, kind of the, the recording equipment or, or the, the actual, you know, investigation of listening sure. to these things. So how much of your job is problem solving, you know, the memory units and, and saying, okay, I need to put on my, you know, my mechanical engineer hat, or I need to talk to my electrical engineer colleague to figure sure. this out versus understanding what happened to the aircraft. Sure. How does so, that break down? Yeah. I'll, I'll start by saying in the lab, we're strictly factual. So we're dealing with basically getting the data off the unit, validating the data as true data, and then presenting it in a way that's helpful to investigators. So I think maybe people think that I'm not solely investigating the aircraft accident. I'm one part of the NTSB, and my job is to be precise with factual data and ensure its validity for use in, you know, in further studies. So I'll start there. But what you said, I think there is no manual for this job, as you can imagine. There's no, uh, how do you download this kind of damaged black box? The manufacturers you know, do provide some help, but a lot of it's based off our previous experience and other investigation boards around the world, their experience. So... Um, that's, you know, within the lab, I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, as it applies to tape recorders, you can certainly dig into uh, the mechanical investigations of what went wrong with that widget, which is quite interesting. But the lab itself, we're made up of uh, four mechanical engineers, three aero engineers, uh, four electrical engineers, and one computer scientist. So we have people with different uh, niche areas of specialty, and certainly I'll cross-reference with them or we'll be working together over each other's shoulders to, you know, kind of ensure that a best practice is happening. Let's talk a bit about the the actual process of listening to the recorder. Let's imagine it came to the lab in perfect condition or it was repaired. First off, who's listening to it and what are you listening for? Sure. So I'll start with, you know, I'll just go through our workflow here. I think the first thing you ought to know is there's there's really no guarantee to me as a specialist having done over 500 investigations that the event was even recorded to begin with. 
typically flight recorders are somewhat of an afterthought uh, as you go up the chain in regulation. So a part 121 operator, if I see there's a part 121 accident, I can be pretty confident that the operator had a working recorder uh, due to the federal regulations. But as we start to go down the chain, 135, 91, not that they're particularly less safe, but they don't have regulations in place as much so as 121 does to ensure the recorder works. So just figuring out if the accident's on there is step one. So I get this thing all you know repaired, plug it in. As the specialists in the lab, uh, we are we we have the responsibility of being the first first to hear it. And I think quite opposite of what you might see is what we're doing is. I'm just trying to see if the event was captured. Really not interested in trying to figure out what happened in that in that first playback, but just did we capture the accident? Can we use this? And, and I just want to I just want to take take one second to to kind of not clarify, but but explain the difference between 121, 91, and 135. So 121, we're talking about for everyone who doesn't know, commercial aviation. You know what we think of you know airlines. Going online, buying a ticket, flying to go see your grandma, th- those types of airlines. 91, we're talking about more general aviation. Uh, and, and 135, we're talking about uh, charter and, and on-demand aviation. So you know, different, different regulations govern different types of flying is, is kind of the, the most general overview I can give. Sure. Uh, give, and give whether audience. or not, I'll, I'll interject here and say, and whether or not the aircraft needs to be outfitted with a CVR or FDR to begin with. So yeah, sorry, I'm I'm getting kind of making your making your job all all the much you know much more difficult, which we we will save for the second half of our conversation. So you you've got the recorder and and you're you're listening to it and and what are we listening for? Sure. So let's assume the event is captured, which I said is not always guaranteed. Well, then you know we will bring in immediately the director of aviation safety, the top person and the director of research and engineering, uh, my, my boss's boss. And we do what's called a CVR audition. So once I ensure that the, the event was captured on the CVR, they'll, they'll, they'll be making their way to the laboratory. At that point, I am preparing it for an audition. So I may be using digital filters or analog filters to try to get the recording to sound as good as possible. It's not the final pass at trying to get it as good as possible, but something good enough to present to the office directors. The office directors will come in and then we'll listen to the entire recording. So the uh, two directors, the director of aviation safety, director of research engineering, and in this case, I'll use myself as a specialist, whoever else is assigned, and we'll just go through and and play that recording. The directors have a few few jobs during that initial audition. And one of it is, you know, simply determine, is this what we call protected content? So we have a a reg in the U.S., uh, 49 U.S.C. 1114C, that restricts how we can use electronic information recorded on a flight deck. In general, a CVR audio is protected under that statute. So the first call they make is, was this CVR is protected under the statute or this widget that recorded this device produces a electronic file similar to the CVR that's also protected. So they'll make that determination and that kind of flows with how we will then disseminate the information. Once that happens, we'll go through, they, they will jot down notes on uh, color piece, color-coded pieces of paper that are used in the NTSB CVR lab. And that's so we can keep track of the notes and see if they ever leave the room. We will then brief the investigator in charge on the go team on scene. So ideally this happens all pretty quickly and they're still on scene. We might, as I said, we're not, you know, quote unquote, figuring it out right then, but we're, we're looking for what's interesting. We'll use maybe an aborted takeoff, for example, if there's an aborted takeoff and the flight crew mentions a problem with engine number one, we might brief the go team on seeing the investigator in charge and say, there were some comments related to a thrust reverser on engine one or uh, left landing gear status, what, what, whatever it is. So that will, you know, while the GO team is on scene and they're working with what we call perishable information, they will then have somewhat of a a guidance towards, okay, what parts might be more interesting to spend time finding at that present moment than, you know, other parts. Are you, at the same time you're auditioning the CVR, do you have, if it's available, do you have the flight data recorder up and, and synced? 
So yeah, actually, it's what's interesting is at that point when we've ensured the CVR and FDR have been downloaded, or I say I'm looking at the CVR in this case, I'm sure it's captured, we'll segregate ourselves actually. So another specialist will be assigned the FDR. And uh, if I'm working the CVR, we're typically not going to compare notes till a while down the road. And what we're trying to do there is, is look at the audio and the data in the most unbiased way possible. So I, I think that's a little known fact. It's, it's not something we advertise too often, but in order to get, you know, kind of a clean, you know, tabula rasa cut on your impression of the CVR audio or the data, you, you might not want to be polluted by, you know, some other, some other source. And in keep in mind, too, that the flight crew on a CVR, they might be confused as well and saying things that may or may not relate to the direct cause of the accident. So you can see here how that kind of dance evolves. And, and, and that's pretty much how we do it. But ideally, yeah, the FDR is, is being worked on in, a, in another room in a, in a segregated way, yes. So while we're talking about the CVR, what microphones are there? It will just stay with you know commercial aviation for, for the moment because that's generally what we focus on. What's being recorded? Sure. I can get well into the weeds in this, but in general, you're going to have four channels of audio. You're going to have a hot mic for the captain and a hot mic for the first officer. So that's different from them having to key the mic or what you might hear through an audio panel on an aircraft where they have to meet a, a box threshold, you are getting recorded directly from their boom mic onto the recorder. The third position would be the jump seat if it's occupied. Usually it's it's not uh, what used to be the flight engineer. It's it's typically a headset that's plugged in that, that might or might not be recording information if there's no one in that seat. And then the fourth thing is the uh, cockpit area mic, which is a standalone microphone typically in the head, headlining of, of the aircraft. And of the cockpit, and that's recording all sounds, uh, including the voices of the pilot that, that make it into the microphone, as well as any clicks, ambient engine noise, gear noise, etc. Generally um, speaking, that, uh, how how good or bad is that data? Is that audio quality? Sure. So in digital recorders, I usually I, I'll call the audio good, and that sounds kind of like a bad answer. The word good, but if you look on any CVR report, at the end of the report, there's actually a, a rating scale. Excellent, good, I think acceptable and poor, or, or poor and unusable. In general, the recording of it from a digital recorder is, is good. It's certainly better than a magnetic tape, but I think in often cases, it leaves something to be desired. It's, it's not like the audio we're putting forth on this podcast by any means. The definition of good in this case could mean that I can make out words without having to do extensive digital filtering. So I gave you possibly the most sciencey answer to that. Uh, but basically, it's it goes off, okay, how many words of what the pilot just said can I actually make out? And typically, we're seeing, you know, above 90% for a digital, digital recorder. Does the amount of time recorded or, or the amount of, of noise, kind of extraneous noise picked up, how do you get that balance right? I mean, when you're dealing with you know four channels of audio, what are you trying to do? Is is it clarity of the voices? Are you trying to isolate the background noise to see you know kind of what what audio yeah, so warnings I, maybe went I'll off? Kind of go two directions with the CVR. Is one you're obviously trying to make out what the pilots what the pilots are saying, and the type of filters you're using there could be totally different than the type of filters you might use to bring out an ambient noise. So. One, we're trying to factually, you know, represent what was said in the cockpit. And that's, that's you know, kind of one route looking at the CVR. On the other side of things, we could be looking at what we call the sound spectrum. So we're looking at sound energy recorded from that cockpit area mic, or maybe through the boom mics too. But things that could lead us to inferences that maybe are parameters that aren't recorded on the FDR. In some business jets, for example, you know, FDRs, you know, don't exist. So we might be looking at engine speeds based on, you know, the whine of the engines in that sound spectrum. So bringing out those, I'll say, cockpit environment noises is, is, a, is kind of a separate workflow. And in the end, you know, as we're transcribing this, we, we will come back and marry them together. But I like to call myself, you know, a mixing board jockey when I'm, when I'm in the lab. I've got six channels, uh, more than four, 
I'll say for the context of four channels that I'm constantly jockeying to kind of get the best mix as we're playing it back. And of course we have all these other digital tricks too, but basically, you know, audio is, it's, it's more than just words. It's, it's sound energy. And what we're trying to do is answer a lot of questions that might not be easily answered from the FDR or other source of data with that audio. So how many passes do you usually make through the CVR? Sure. Again, dependent a lot on the uh, recording. So but let's say it's pretty good. We, I should say the transcript, which is driven by the fact of um, the data being protected under 49 USC 1114C, we're not allowed to release that audio, as you probably know by now. And that's what drives the generation of the transcript. So our main goal is to factually transcribe those words accurately. And uh, how we do that is we'll bring in through the party system. So accredited represent representatives to the investigation uh, belonging, maybe the engine manufacturer, the airframe manufacturer, the pilot's union, whoever else might be directly involved and have some technical expertise to offer to the transcription group. We'll hold, hold what we call a transcription group. That process to get at answering your question, that process for a 30 minute recording typically can take about a week where we're really trying to, you know, hit it accurately and factually. When I hold groups or when other specials, the best practice really is once you've got it all down after the, that week long practice is you go back and you listen to it all the way through and you read, you read what you wrote. And because of the way the mind works with audio and brain interpreting it, Sometimes you'll be able to pick up on stuff that you you haven't heard previously. So there's a bit of a psychological factor in doing this where time actually helps get a more accurate, accurate product, but it can take a while. For other investigations, I, I did ship syncing called the Alfara, which is, I know, marine, not aviation, but I, I spent about a month transcribing that that recording with with the group. Wow. Having having transcribed yeah, interviews, really no. Uh, I, I'm not going to give you a short answer, so maybe I'm not. Yeah, no, but I'm just saying. I'm just <laughs> thinking to myself. I'm like having transcribed interviews before. Sure. So I think maybe the next question to ask is, can you automate it? And we all know, you know, Siri and Google, and you can speak to your phone and transcribe to text. So that that technology exists, but there's there's some problems with us using it. And number one, the obvious problem is. Those, those software capabilities typically require the data to hit a server online, which is not something we do, not something we want to put this protected information on. Number two is, I think more interestingly, we don't want the computer to bias the interpretation of the audio. So, so most of these uh, speech-to-text algorithms are trained on normal conversation, not particularly aviation speak, right? So we don't want to have it hit a first pass with the computer and put down some words and then look at those words and then assign it to audio in our own mind. So I think that's why we're going to stick with this being a human process and it taking some time is valuable in the, in the factual scheme of things. So for now, the answer is it's a manual, very manual process and it takes however long it takes. Sure. Yes, ex exactly. So you, I mean, what, what I, I read the media too, and you can be assured that when an investigation's going on, the, the priority is getting the words off that recording factually. We're not wasting our time there. The boots have hit the ground. We're, we're running from, from the get-go. And we want to ensure that process is factual and accurate. As you said, Jason, it, it may be an unsatisfying answer, but in certain cases, it's going to take however long it's going to take. What would help us is, you know, better, better quality recordings, but that's a different issue. So let us pause here, pause this week's conversation here and say thanks to, to Sean Payne from the NTSB for providing us a, a window into how the recording group operates and how, you know, cockpit voice transcripts are created and, and things like that. And next week, we're going to to come back and, and continue our conversation with Sean and talk about some of the ways that the NTSB has advocated for new technology that would increase safety, uh, not only in aviation, but, but in other modes of transportation. And from the past half hour of a conversation with Sean, make Sean's job a lot easier. It sounds like. So Sean, thanks for joining us uh, this guys. week. And we will look forward to speaking with you a little bit more in, in our next installment. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Ian and Chase. Thank you, guys.
welcome back. I learned a lot, and now I'm really looking forward to to part two of our conversation next week, which I think will be enlightening for a variety of different reasons, and perhaps a, a bit more a bit more contentious, shall we say? Yeah, I think it will be quite a bit contentious, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have a, a number of listeners who will loudly disagree. I look forward to it. So, yeah, but uh, if you have any any thoughts on, on our on part one of our conversation with Sean, please email us at podcast.fr24.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that so far, and then we'll look forward to to next week's episode as well. We've talked about this before, and Jason, you've always been reluctant to discuss it until it's actually a real thing, but now we're kind of almost to where it's a real thing, and JetBlue might actually be going to London. The UK CAA said that they could fly to London. They've got slots at Heathrow, but we still don't know where they're going to fly or which airport they're going to fly to in London. So it's kind of real, but not quite. Yeah, more real than it has been, and that was really... I think the last stumbling block before they could actually start selling tickets, which um, they should probably do as soon as possible, seeing as that they said they wanted to start up this service in the summer. And uh, you need to start selling tickets to get people on the plane so you could start service. But that seems to be the last hurdle that they need to go go through. Now they just need to tell us where they're flying. Is it going to be Gatwick? Is it going to be Heathrow? Could it be split? Could it be Heathrow from JFK and Gatwick from Boston? That would be interesting. But I, I'm most certainly looking forward to it. That's a, a route that desperately needs some new competition after the fall of Norwegian. After the fall of Norwegian. The book on Norwegian is going to be interesting, and I think that would be a good title for it. It's not done yet. Uh, sure. So tell me about what France is doing with domestic flights, because this news was kind of all over the place in the actual impact. Yeah, they're making a lot of noise about restricting domestic flying on routes that could be served by high-speed rail in two and a half hours or less, I believe, is the rule. Um, There was a lot of noise from the industry and and from passengers that, oh my God, this is going to kill domestic flying in France and it's going to be such a pain. Well, it turns out that there's only like five routes in the whole of France that will be impacted by this. And they are routes that you should definitely be uh, taking a train on there, such as uh, Paris to Lyon, Lyon to Marseille, Bordeaux to Paris. These are routes that are connected directly by high-speed rail. Uh, and you will still be able to to board a connecting flight. So if you're flying New York to Lyon, you'll still be able to connect on a flight. But overall, the number of routes that will be uh, prohibited represents something like 5% of pre-pandemic scheduling. So it's really, really minor, but something other countries should uh, aspire to copy, I think. I I don't know if aspire to – maybe a little toothier, a little more teeth to to the regulations would would be a, a good way to go. Yeah, you, you got to start somewhere, and there. Yeah, are- I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to begrudge starting anywhere and, and getting things, you know, getting things going. I think is a is a it, it's a good first step. Yeah, there are definitely some other countries that could mirror this almost right away. I'm thinking Germany would probably be the next obvious choice for this with their very well developed high speed rail network. But there was a lot of table banging from the industry about this proposed rule from France, which is now, I think, solidified. And just it's such a non-issue kind of thing, especially in a country with that is really leading the world in, in high-speed rail. So good to see it. As you say, Ian, I, I wish there was some more teeth to it, some more routes that should be shifted to rail. But maybe one day in the US, we could do something like that. Yeah, ain't going to happen. No. You would need high-speed rail. You would need high-speed rail. And even in the uh, cities we pretend to have high-speed rail, we still have stupid things like LaGuardia to Philadelphia on an E-145. <laughs> Why? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. It's, I don't foresee it happening in the US anytime, not even anytime soon, just anytime on a timeline that includes my life. No, no. Uh, 
sad, but true. Yeah. So, so a lot has been made about testing prior to traveling. And for one flight, maybe there was a bad batch of tests or, or something because on a flight from India to Hong Kong operated by, or for Vistara, a total of 53 passengers tested positive for COVID on the single flight. That's 28% of all available seats on that aircraft eventually tested positive. Huh? So it's thought that it's possible that people could have been infected during their quarantine period in a hotel and that such transmission didn't happen on board the aircraft because there just has not been any sort of mass infection event like that on any other flight. But then India is a special case right now because if you look at what's going on there, it is nothing good. Their cases have absolutely skyrocketed in the last few weeks. They've kind of rolled back protections and mutations of COVID have really enjoyed that rolling back of protections. You know, over 200,000 new cases a day at at this point. And I think multiple countries have put India on their red list or whatever, which really just means mm-hmm. they're going to run a mass amount of flights leading up to a total ban of flights, which makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it's, so it happened with India, but it also happened with with Pakistan last week, where the UK added Pakistan to its red list or said effective, uh, or this may have been two weeks ago. I think it was effective April 9th. You'll be added to the red list so you can come, but you can't, you have to quarantine in a hotel and, and it'll be very expensive to to do so. And so they said, oh, okay. And so what happened was Pakistan International Airlines chartered, I believe it was 16 total flights. There, there was Enter Air from Poland was involved. British Airways was involved. Was it Wamos and HiFly? So you have all of this heavy metal coming in to bring UK citizens back to the UK from Pakistan because we're going to put them on the red list. And, and so they're coming. They still have to quarantine, but not in a hotel. And there's really no way to keep track of it. And for the life of me, I still can't understand why that happens or like how no, how anyone thinks that's a good idea. I mean, I, I get you have to weigh, you, you have to balance the potential to strand people in another country for an indefinite period of time, just an unknown period of time. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. But then you also have to weigh that against why in the hell would we import Thousands of people in mass from a country that we're about to ban because there's too much COVID there. Why would you bring them all in at once? It's, it's just it flies in the face of common sense, but it keeps happening over and over, <sighs> and probably will keep happening. Yep. So the production facilities at Painfield in Everett are are in a state of flux as. Boeing moves all of its 787 production to South Carolina, leaving a big hole in the airfield, really. And now comes news that FedEx is interested. And and Jason knows a little bit more about this. Yes. uh, I've read the uh, summary on Flight Global, and I can't read the whole article because I'm not a premium subscriber right now. But uh, Boeing has a lot of extra space or is planning to have a lot of extra space up in Payne Field. Uh, the Dreamlifter, for those who somehow might not know about it, is the modified 747-400 that hauls around 787 parts all over the world from Japan to uh, was it uh, Wichita and Charleston and Everett. They're not going to need that to come into Don't Everett anymore. It- and Italy, and Italy, that's true. And it stops JFK to fill up on gas sometimes. But they're not going to need to send it to Everett anymore if they no longer build 787s there. So I think this is the first of what we're going to see a lot of, uh, of divvying up ex-Boeing manufacturing centers to 
anyone else who wants it. And in this case, I don't believe there's any cargo operation at Payne Field, which is well to the north of Seattle. And I don't believe any cargo goes there right now, though. Uh, FedEx and UPS, I believe, use they use Boeing Field, actually, which is funny enough. But now they'll actually maybe possibly see FedEx up at Payne Field. That, yeah, and I mean, it's it's a good bit of space up there. That, that they could take advantage of. Yeah. So um, I wonder if it will be direct flights from Memphis or if these would be like feeder flights from Boeing Field. That'd be cool to have a little ATR doing uh, feeder flights from, from Boeing Field to Payne Field. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe. This is not we'll a done see. deal. And, and Boeing has no, this not, is, these uh, are These are just reports of imminence. Right. Boeing nothing, has said, nothing. go away, please. We have nothing to say about this. Uh, nobody would obviously want to talk about something that's not a done deal, but it sounds like something that makes sense. Far smaller regions have at least feeder service from FedEx and UPS. So uh, yeah, we'll ship ourselves out there and, and find out. Great. Let us close the show with some some news and announcements related to the show itself. Last week, Jason and I joined the Plain Talking UK podcast, a, uh, a very good group of folks, and we had a lot of fun. We'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can, you can check out their show, which is not just a podcast, but also a, a video podcast, and you get to, to look at, at Jason and I, if you want to, but you can also do just the audio, which is really what we, what we prefer. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And we are now on Amazon Music. So if you've got one of those handy dandy speaker thingies in your house, you can tell it to play AvTalk and hopefully it will do that. Or it'll turn on your neighbor's lights. We don't know. It's most likely going to turn on your neighbor's lights. So yeah, Amazon Music, you can search AvTalk Podcast and find us now, or you can listen wherever you wish to listen to your podcasts. And wherever you do wish to listen to your podcasts, if you would be so kind as to leave us a rating or a review, we would be ever so grateful. The more reviews, the more hot dogs Jason gets. That's just how we do things around here. It's a fair Uh, exchange. Indeed. So yeah, we, Jason and I will, will see each other in just a few days time, we'll figure out what we're going to do and, and we might do a little something extra. So so keep an eye on the FlightRadar24 Twitter account this weekend, if you're listening to the podcast on Friday, the 23rd for the 24th, just keep an eye on, on the FlightRadar24 Twitter account and we'll see if the weather cooperates and all that good fun stuff. But otherwise, we'll be back next week with with part two of an interview with Sean Payne of the NTSB and whatever else happens in the aviation world between now and then. This has been episode 110 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 